One of the concerns that I've heard, note the word concerns. Church members don't complain, they have concerns. That I've heard over the years is my uh, predilection to prefer to study in series. Just to let you know, I'm not alone. There are many of us who prefer to preach this way. It's expository versus topical. I've never enjoyed preaching topically. I have nothing against it. It's just not my thing. To preach topically would be to pick a topic and then go to the Bible and see everything that the Bible says about that topic and preach on the topic. I much prefer to start with the Bible and stay in it and go. Number one, when you're as disorganized as I am, you always know what you're going to be doing next week. You may not know what you're going to say, but you know where you'll be. By the time that I got to our last church, my dear brother, Pastor Walt, he had been with Grace Point for 20 years, and he liked to preach that way too. So by the time I got there, I was just kind of easing in. The church really didn't complain about his series anymore. But there was a talent night one night where two of our good friends parried, parodied me and Walt doing the announcements. Every Sabbath morning, Walt and I would tag team the announcements. We'd stand together and go back and forth. And most of it was more about he and I trying to go one up on each other uh, than anything else. And they parried, parodied us doing the announcements. And during the announcements, we announced that next Sabbath, we were beginning a new series, 64 weeks on the book of Jude. Now, those of you who are laughing understand that Jude is the shortest book in all the Bible. Well, 3 John. We, it would have been even funnier if they had done 3 John, but it was the book of Jude. And Walt and I both looked at each other and we kind of laughed, but we also knew a challenge when we heard it. And we thought, we could do at least 50. There are 25 verses in the book of Jude. I could do one on one verse and he could do another on that verse and... Like I said, we know a challenge when we hear one. So I just wanted to let you know that I am aware of your concerns about the series as this week, I don't wanna leave chapter seven yet, okay? I wanna stay in chapter seven. I told you that there was some really good stuff in chapter seven, and I spent most of the time last week on one particular verse, and this time it will be just on one particular verse also. By the way, if you'll notice, it's chapter seven. This is study seven. I didn't do chapter two. You all owe me one anyway. From last week, we concluded that this church, this house, and really any house under the sun could be and is a house of mourning at any time. We all remember that? We've had our share, haven't we? But mourning and grief is a bond that all humanity shares. If we spend any sort of minutes under the sun in this planet, toiling in the vanity of vanities, all is vanity, eventually grief is going to touch every one of us, amen? So we left it at this verse, this was the verse before, it's what, so since it is inevitable, what Solomon concluded, what our Kohelet concluded was that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of everyone and the living will lay it to heart. 
the living heart on this planet lives where? In the house of mourning. So we took the opportunity to talk about grief and mourning on, on how we might be able to do it, on how we could help others uh, do it, uh, to, to experience grief. And the only way that we can conclude that it is indeed better to be in the house of the morning, of, of mourning is if we let the mourner grieve. If at any opportunity it's time for us to grieve, that at least the house of mourning would allow the grief to occur and hopefully be able to facilitate it and comfort them as they do. How many here left last week wanting a little bit more to be able to comfort people who are in grief? especially since many of them are sitting right next to you right now. I don't know if Solomon knew instinctively the fundamental importance of grief. I really don't know. Nor uh, did he know that maybe he was possibly or intentionally writing a grief manual, one to follow, but it sure resonated with me. And you know how I know it resonated with you? that I had at least three times as many people come to me last Sabbath to share a little bit of something about what was going on with them. One of the foundations of grief and grief comforting is found then in the next question. Solomon says, okay, since you all are on board with me, that it's better to be in the house of mourning, why not make it better? Let's make it a better experience. And the very next verse that, that, that we'll go to today is this one verse that we're gonna kinda center around, and one is, is that there shouldn't be a question ever asked in the house of mourning, and it's this one. Why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. He's pretty clear on this, isn't he? There's no wiggle room there. He says what when it comes to asking, why was it so much better in the former days? Why were the good old days the good old days? He's pretty clear, isn't he? How often does he say we should ask that question? Don't. Don't. Why? Because it's not wise. He says, you ask this question and you are not operating from a platform of wisdom. Now, to someone in grief, I would not say this to somebody who is grieving the loss of a loved one, but know what he's saying. He's not saying stop remembering, stop reminiscing, forget those you lost right now. In fact, I, I have, have shared uh, before that one of the common fears of anybody who's experienced grief is the fear that they are going to forget their loved one and what they sounded like, and what it felt like to have them around. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't remember. He's saying don't ask the question, why are they so much better? Why are those times so much better? I wanna dig in a little bit on this, but first he gives us a guideline. First, he wants us to know that the wisdom platform is the one we should all be standing on. He says this. He says, wisdom is as good as a what? As an inheritance. Wisdom is better than an inheritance, he's saying. It's an advantage to anybody under the sun. 
For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to the one who possesses it. Be wise, he says, as you approach the house of mourning or as you try to help somebody through the house of mourning. We should be wise. Again, those verses are very proverbial, are they not? Is there anybody here that disagrees with these? No, these kind of proverbial statements are there because nobody's going to disagree with them. Is wisdom better? Is wisdom an advantage? Of course it is. And it'll always be so. But what's so unwise about asking why the former days were better? One hint is the next verse. He says, consider the work of who? Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? He's saying that if God is in control of some things and most things, and we believe of all things, what is it we can do to try to correct the direction that God has taken our lives? We're like pots in the hand of the potter. Jeremiah said, what pot ever told the potter, hey, why are you making me like this? So when asking the questions of death and life and suffering and all that goes on under the sun, who's the only one that knows? Why? He's the only one that knows. We consider our questions about why the past was better. Chances are that it's not for us to know. One of two things about asking why the past was better than it is now. One is, it's not for us to know. If God wants us to know the answers, will we eventually know the answers? Yes. Has anybody here ever been answered, truly, absolutely heard God's voice and says, this is why? None of us have. So we may not be ready for it. We may not be privileged to it. And the other thing that we have to accept that Solomon is accepting now, after being in charge, after being in control, after driving his own vehicle all his life and has driven it into the ditch over and over and over, he's finally come to the conclusion, you know what? Maybe if I let Jesus take the wheel. And I'm not going to sit in the passenger seat when Jesus takes the wheel and says, why are you going this way? Because all I know is that when I take the wheel, I drive it straight into the ditch. Not all knowledge was meant for us. I get to quote Pastor Walt again. He is God and we are not. And It's why we are living in houses of mourning in the first place, is because our parents, our first human parents, decided that they wanted knowledge that wasn't meant for them. Now, God didn't say that he wasn't going to give them knowledge. He gave them knowledge. At the time of their time in their lives and their existence, I don't know how long it was. Who knows from time? Because before the fall, I don't know what time looked like. Nobody knows what time looked like. There wasn't a time limit before the fall, was there? It's the fall that put a time limit on time. I don't know how long they had been together. I don't know how long they'd been walking and talking with God. 
And God gave them knowledge. And the knowledge was this. The knowledge uh, from the tree of good and evil, that knowledge between good and evil, that's a knowledge that I've reserved for me. I'll make it available to you, but I'm telling you right now, you don't want it. Trust me. And they didn't, did they? Which is why right now all of us are living in houses of mourning under the sun. We changed that. We have knowledge we're not supposed to have. He asked us if there would be knowledge that we would trust only with him. There needed to be a choice, yes. Had to be a choice. One of the greatest things, uh, one of the most loving things God ever did for us was to make the knowledge available even though we weren't supposed to have it as creatures. And he asked us to trust us with that. Do you trust God as your creator? Do you trust him with the knowledge that only he has and that he will do with it what he has promised to do with it? That was the question. That was the trust. He based it on the fact that there's only life in him. Where else do we find life outside of the creator? Who created all of us? He did. Where else do you find life? Nowhere else. Nowhere else. So he based it on the fact that we find only life with him and he trusts us, he asked us to trust him with that knowledge, to trust him in, in, in saying that, to trust him in the choice that he gave us. The choice has always only been between life and death. Of the covenant that he made with his sons and daughters, the one that he made with Adam and Eve was probably the most simple. And the covenant was this. I'm God, you're not. I give you life. Your job is to live. That was our part of the covenant. And we blew it. We decided not to trust him with that knowledge. Serpent didn't trust him. Serpent got our parents not to trust him either. I say over and over and over again, I know a lot of you are sick and tired of me saying it, but the original sin was not disobedience to God's word. The original sin was mistrusting him. Disobedience was the fruit of that mistrust. Believing that life could be had outside of a walking, talking relationship with God. A a lie that life could be had as I continue to distance myself from God, hiding in the bushes, covering myself up with leaves that covers nothing up at all, and continuing to create space between me and the only one that can give me life. He isn't holding out on us. It's not an ego trip. It's just fact. He is the only source of life and light. And without him is darkness and death. Period. It's why I believe that when we do ask this question, that if we ask this question of why, are, why were the good old days so much better than it is today, that question really is a human kind of self-centered question. It isn't a question that you ask God. You with me? 
I don't believe that I've ever asked God. I may, I may pray that prayer and I may say, Lord, could you show me why the good old days were so much better? I'm not really wanting the answer to that. You know why? Because if you ask God, he'll tell you flat out, they weren't. You're still believing the lie. You're coming from a, from a standpoint that you can't trust me with life. You're looking at what you guys chose as a substitute for the life I had in mind for you, and you're basing everything on that. When you get down and you come to, your, uh, come to God in the morning in your devotion, have you ever asked him how he was doing? Have you ever asked him how his day went at the end of the day? Because God certainly has a case that none of the former days were better. From his perspective, none. Not one day has been better for God than the day before or the day after. Not one. According to all of our statistics that we have, 25,000 people died of starvation yesterday. Yesterday. In a 24-hour period. 10,000 of them were children. They all died of some severity of malnutrition and hunger. 850, 800, I couldn't even believe this statistic, 850 million, 850 million people right now, that is nearly one billion of the seven billion on this planet, nearly one-seventh of the entire population is suffering from some form of severity of nutritional need. And again, we'd have the nerve to ask God, why was yesterday better than today? We don't want God to answer that question for us, do we? It's a, creature, it's a creature question. It's not a creator question. And Solomon said at times like this, we shouldn't be seeking answers to the creature questions. It's not that he doesn't care about our grief. It's not that he doesn't want us to have answers. He wants us to have comfort. But if we're using the questions to try to avoid grieving, see, if I can ponder all day long why it was better in the past when I had my loved ones, so forth and so on, when I had my, uh, my health and, what, and, and my wealth, thinking of Job, when I had my job, when I had everything, if I spend all the time doing that, guess where I'm not living? I'm not living in the here and now. And the here and now is where my grief is and where it needs to be dealt with. That's what I mean when I say it's a creature question and not a creator question. The creator wants me to have comfort. But we don't get comfort unless we first what? Mourn. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. From a grief standpoint, it's a flawed path of premise to ponder why the past is, is better, why it takes our minds and our hearts and attention away. If it's doing that, we're not experiencing our grief now. Grief's going on right now. It needs to be dealt with when? Now. Is it okay 
If, if uh, I read just a little bit of my devotion in the newsletter, how many got my devotion in the newsletter yesterday? Can I, do you mind if I read just a little bit from it? See, when I shared last week that we shouldn't try to hope anyone's grief away, did you understand what I meant when I said that? One of the things that grieving people constantly share with me is that fellow church members won't let them grieve. Fellow church members can't go five seconds with them without reminding them that they have a future hope. And at that moment, by the way, do they have a future hope? But you know what? It's for the future. Right now is what they, when they need to what? When they need to grieve. And I hate to say it, but the reason that most of us do that, and I have done it in the past too, is that really what I'm saying is, Arlene, I'm uncomfortable with your grief right now. I need to make you feel better so I can feel better. So we shouldn't try to hope anyone's grief away. That's, that's uh, number one in the comforting, the grieving manual to try to use the future hope to make somebody feel better. I shared in the newsletter, I said this. I said, we all have future hope in at least two things. What are they? That Jesus is coming to resurrect his that have died and translate his that are living. The other is our eternal home that that translation and resurrection provides for us. And it's a home free of pain, death, and what? And grief. I wrote, I said, we find hope in these things because they are promised and can be claimed. Yes, but they are also future comfort that comes as an answer to current grief. We spend a life in the house of mourning. Comfort is coming. But right now, hope of that comfort can't keep me from grieving. or I'll give up on this promise completely. Job came this close to giving up on that promise. His friends kept trying to hope his comfort away. At, at, at worst, at best, at, at, at worst, they tried to tell him that he was responsible for all of this grief. If Job had listened to him, he'd have turned his back on God. He'd have took his wife's advice. What are you doing? And it was only when Job was able to express himself in his grief that he went from not knowing whether or not God was listening to knowing that his Redeemer lived. The problem with trying to comfort the grieving with the future is that grief is not about the future. It's about the very present pain. Grief... Uh, that must be felt and allowed to be felt in the present moment because that is where it lies, in the here and now. The hope of the future wasn't designed as a weapon to stop the pain. And by the way, it does stop it immediately. If you're ever with somebody who was grieving up until the time that you reminded of their, of their hope, watch what happens to them. They stop immediately. They don't want you thinking that they're unspiritual. They don't want you thinking that they don't believe in the future hope. So what do they do? They shut it down. But we misunderstand the hope's purpose if we use the hope and try to make somebody feel better. Grief isn't a time to endure until we can feel better. 
Grief is a necessary process to actually begin to live whole again. And by the way, grief is a process that may never let us feel as we did in the former days. But if we don't grieve immediately, that grief will build up. It'll go unfulfilled. We'll shove it down. Like like I happen to do with all my emotions, we'll shove it down. And eventually, somewhere, sometime, I can't get out of bed because I'm so depressed and I don't know why. Every therapist I ever spoke with said that when I find somebody so depressed they can't get out of bed, all I have to do is scratch the surface and out oozes unresolved grief and guilt. Solomon's really onto something here, isn't he? To ponder the living heart in the house of mourning. It's here, it's present. To ponder why the past was better removes the context grief was supposed to have been done in. Grief isn't done in the future context. It isn't done in the past context. It's done now. It's done in the present. There's another element to this. Uh, being God's purview and God's purview alone in the next verse. It says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There are righteous people who perish in their righteousness and there are wicked people who prolong their life in evil doing. The other thing that pondering why a past is better is we we can begin then to make assumptions about why a sickness occurred, why an illness occurred, why a traumatic death occurred and whether or not it had anything to do with the person's righteousness or wickedness. See, I ponder that too long, and then I begin to think, okay, well, maybe my loved one wasn't as righteous as I thought, and he was being punished. I'll take the tact of Job's friends. Where was Job's friends' context in trying to comfort them? It was somewhere in Job's past, somewhere to try to get at Job's past at whatever this sin was that he committed that that, uh, rendered this kind of punishment for him. If our, assumptions about things, uh, about, if our assumptions about how things should go and how they don't, I don't know. Solomon says right here, if you're going to begin to go down that road, pump your brakes. He says, you know why? Because in my vain life, I've seen it all. I've seen righteous people who what? Who died. I've seen wicked people who live. Suffering and death are not punishments for sin. Solomon says, I know it's true. Why? Because I've witnessed it. Jesus told us so. But before I remind us of what Jesus says, he, he approaches it as only the Kohelet can approach it. He approaches it in a unique way. And I don't, I'm gonna take a chance. I don't know if you're gonna get this because I think I barely get it. But would you like to explore the way he puts it? Listen to what he says. He says, don't be too righteous. Listen, he's, what he's saying is, if you're gonna head down the road and try to assume why somebody's sick and suffering and grieving or not and dying, if you're gonna head down that road, he says, first of all then, don't be too righteous. <laughs> I, I've gotten to know the Coelet pretty well and only he would say something like that. Don't be too righteous and don't act what? Too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? 
trying to use your wisdom as to whether or not someone was righteous enough to to buy God's healing, if you will, you're gonna drive yourself insane. Why? Because there's nobody who's righteous enough. And don't be too wicked. I love that. Don't be too wicked. And do not be a fool. For why should you die before your time? He is stating a reality that a lot of fools end their lives prematurely. Why? Because they're fools. I know what it sounds like. I know what it sounds like. If you look at it at face value, if righteous people can't avoid suffering and death with their righteous living, and wicked people can't seem to even wicked their way to suffering and death, in other words, righteous people can't righteous their way to healing, and wicked people can't wicked their way to suffering, if that's the case, he says, why not live somewhere in the middle? That's almost what it sounds like, doesn't it? But it isn't. He's reiterating a kind of logic that may be confusing on the surface if we just jumped in here, but we also point out where we've been with him. The context with him is that he beautifully points out the vanity of believing something that simply isn't true. To try to figure out, based on righteousness and wickedness, as to whether or not somebody lived or died or suffered or did not suffer and experienced joy in this life, he says that too is vanity. It's futility. Don't be too righteous. What I hear when I hear him say, don't be too righteous, he says, don't try to buy your health and well-being with it. You ever spend a lot of time with folks who became believers and began living a righteous walk in order just to avoid hell? Or who began to walk a righteous walk so they simply could be more righteous than somebody else? Those people have a whole lot going on inside that I can't fathom. And by the way, they're the most miserable people I've ever been around. People who worship God because they're afraid of the alternative. By the way, is death to be feared? How many here fear death? Solomon said it doesn't matter if you're righteous or wicked. You know what death at least buys you? Rest. So he says... Why are you messing so much with how righteous somebody is or how wicked somebody is? Pump your brakes on that. Don't live somewhere in the middle. No, be righteous, yes, be righteous, but be righteous for the right reasons. He says, it's good that you should take hold of the one without letting go of the other. For the one who fears God shall succeed what? With both. What's his solution? Is to fear God. It's to walk with God. That's what he's, the conclusion he's coming to. Accept the fact that we still carry the natures that all suffering under the sun stems from. He's not giving us permission to be a little wicked. He's not giving us permission to just be not too righteous. He's stating the reality of our under the sun house of mourning status. Because he says, surely there is no one on earth so righteous as to do good without ever sinning. How many righteous does he say there is? Not one. 
Do not give heed to everything that people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. You may look righteous on the outside, the Kohelet says, but he says, Greg, you and my heart and your heart, we know better, don't we? I can do some righteous things, but not what? I can't be perfect. Hold on to wickedness. Hold on to it. Be wicked. No. Acknowledge it because it's true. Amen? Your heart knows the truth. By the way, he's, he's echoing, or, or actually uh, later, our Kohelet, Paul, echoes what Solomon just said right there. It's Romans 7 and, and Romans 8, isn't it? The Kohelet later, uh, known as Paul, will say this, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see my members in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Didn't Paul say exactly what Solomon just said in Ecclesiastes? Isn't that exactly what he said here 3,000 years later? No, sorry, 1,000 years later. 3,000 for us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that in my mind I'm a slave to the law of God. In my mind I'm righteous, but I can't be too righteous because I'm not perfect. In my mind I know what to do, but also in my flesh I'm a slave to the law of sin. Paul acknowledges it the same way that the Kohelet acknowledges it, right? We're still carrying around the very reason why we're living in the house of mourning in the first place. The selfish natures that you and I adopted the second that we fall, fell. See, in those people who think that, that uh, righteousness equals always blessing and wickedness equals always curse in this life under the sun, they have a problem with this because they, what they used to teach is, okay, so you're not perfect. You're, you're, you're thinking, God, you're not like that tax collector over there. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like him. And you're looking forward to the day where you will be perfect. But if you acknowledge truly the wickedness that we have, that little bit of wickedness in our heart and acknowledge when it, when it happens, acknowledge when we give in to it. You're not condemned by God. Therefore, chapter eight, verse one says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the teachers, the rabbis used to teach that, that the, the struggle, if you will, that Paul is talking about, the struggle that we have between the law of sin in my members and the law of God in my heart and mind, the struggle was, was proof that we weren't there. The struggle was proof that, that, that we were sinning. We were condemned even for the struggle. And Paul says, no. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like, just like Paul said. Don't let go of one and hold on to the other. Try to hold on to them both because those who fear God, they know what they're doing. 
They can walk in this way. Take hold without letting go of the other. For the one who fears God will succeed. So the human answer might be that the former days simply just weren't better. We may think they are, but they weren't. We're being fooled. We're being fooled. So don't say, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. So when the pandemic started, I kept hearing one word. You know what that word was? Unprecedented. What people were saying when they said that these times are unprecedented is that literally there have not been any times like this before now. There never was a time where there was a plague killing thousands a day in my own country. When the lid on the ever simmering pot of our race religions was blown completely off after another lynching went viral, rioting in the streets, entered into the 20th year of a war that was still costing us our soldiers' lives on top of thousands of people in other countries that this nation was getting a little bit tired of. 18 years, by the way, after it was announced that it was mission accomplished. So he said there was never ever a time like this. Times like this are unprecedented. And I sat down and I wanted to write a little bit about it and I think I I did write it in the newsletter. It was back in the very first days of the newsletter, which is why I can't find it now. I don't know where it's at. I don't know where those old files went. And I started to think, hmm, 2019 and 20, 1968, 1964, we had the civil rights rioting covered. We had the war covered, didn't we? Vietnam, I don't know about the pandemic. 1910, World War I, 40 million deaths, only 11 of them military. 1919, 1918 to 1919, Spanish flu that killed 500 million worldwide. 700,000 right here in the U.S. Also happened to be known as 1919 as Red Summer that started with a race riot in Chicago and ended up with, in just one summer, over 100 lynchings around this country after a black swimmer in Lake Michigan just happened to wander into the right area and he was stoned to death on his raft. Our church incorporates in 1863. So we took the race thing and the war thing and actually put it together. Also happens to be at the end of a cholera epidemic that before that had cost 3% of the population in Chicago when it hit it. unprecedented? Are the old days any better then than it is now? No. See, it seems to run into a deeper problem from keeping us to live in the moment. Mistaking tradition for the sacred. The church, how is it that we determine what's sacred to us? Why is it that we worship the way we do today? How did we determine that this way of worship was sacred? By believing that it was better in the old days than it is today. 
the number one tool that the church uses to make something sacred is what? Time. Was it better? Is it better? What actually should define sacred for us is when God says that it's sacred. Most of what we have today, is it prescribed specifically for us in in the Bible or the spirit of prophecy? No. What is it that prescribes the way that we worship today and the practices that we see and and the way that we see mission and everything else? How did it get to be sacred to us today? About 180 years of what? Tradition. I told you before, I've got nothing against tradition, absolutely nothing against tradition, providing we leave room for God to speak. But once you determine something is sacred, once you've answered the question that the former days were better, guess what? We've answered the question. We're not listening anymore. Which means that what we're doing may not necessarily be what? Sacred. I'll put it in modern parlance, is that every time that I've ever suggested that a church maybe make a little bit of change based on the time that we're living in the here and now, you know what I hear? But we've always done it this way. That's the answer to the question. That is the same thing. It's it's the same essence, if you will. Why were the former days so much better than they are now? And by the way, we still think that that's the answer. We see our mission slipping. We see our attendance slipping. We see our giving declining. And the movement then seeks to do the one thing that they know how, and that is to grasp at what they know is sacred, and they always go where? In the past. Why? Because the church really believes that the glory days were better than today. Name me one time, one time that it's 2,000 year history that the church ever went back in order to be revived and reformed. Did Luther and the reformers say, you know what? It was so much better. It was so much better when, when the dragon was in complete control about 150 years ago. Let's go back there. Now I will say, Luther never, ever dreamed that he would ever have to create another church. He truly wanted to reform the one that he was in. But when they left him no choice, he had to go where? To now and the future. By the way, isn't this Laodicea's condition? Laodicea's locked Jesus out. Why? Because we know the answer to the question, why the former days were better. I've got my cherished views. I have my cherished doctrine. I've got my, the way that I interpret the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. I'm rich and have need of nothing. Holy Spirit, you can stay outside the door. And yet all Jesus is doing is knocking on the door to saying, you know what? You need just a little bit more of me today. You need, you need me to reveal a little bit more of me to you today. Just open the door. Just a crack. Just a crack. As Arlene pointed out, that disciple had spent every waking moment with Jesus for three and a half years. Nearly every waking moment. 
He'd heard nearly every word the Son of Man uttered while he was on this planet. From preaching, to teaching, to prayers, to rebuking, to debating, and even admonishing the current church. Telling them that they needed to what? That they needed to change. And the answer the church always had for Jesus was, but the glory days were so much better than they are now. We're good, thank you. He witnessed every action and every movement that the Savior made. He, he, he saw the healing. He saw the miracles. He saw the cleansing. All of it. And in the 60 years since that he went back to heaven, the promise that he'd be back soon, the church had grown, the church moved forward, the church had begun to to grow beyond their wildest dreams. The Spirit saw to it that they expanded and they looked beyond uh, what they had. They looked beyond to include who? Gentiles. They include now the slave and the free, the Jew and the Greek, the male and the female. All barriers were broken down by the Spirit. But also on the other hand, he's the only one left, this beloved disciple. He said goodbye to all of his compatriots well over 30 years before this, maybe 40. He's been exiled on this rock of an island, which is at least the third or fourth attempt by the second emperor to try to martyr him. If there's anyone, anyone who might be allowed just one moment to ask, why are the former days so much better than now? It would be John, wouldn't it? And if there's anybody who maybe we think doesn't need any further revelation of Jesus, it would be John. But just before, I believe that just before he could begin to ask that, just before he could begin to wonder why he is still here and Peter and James and the others are all gone, before he could ask that, he hears a trumpet behind him. He hears a voice behind him. Now, I don't know about you, but if a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet blasts behind me out of nowhere, I'm not gonna waste time to see what's going on. I'm running. Even though there's not a lot of place to run on Patmos, I'm running. Not John, though. John turns to see. Why? Why does he turn to see? Because it was a trumpet, and it was a blast, but there was something familiar to this voice. It's different, but I've heard it before. So he turns to see, and he sees one like a son of man. Not the one that I knew, not the one that I saw go up into heaven 60 years ago, but one who has a flaming eyes and and, and a face shining like the sun. John's new revelation of Jesus. Just to share this with you, Hebrew thought puts the past in front of us. Do you know why the past is in front of you in Hebrew thought? Because you've already experienced it. We know what it is. We have knowledge of it. We know all about it, don't we? 
So in order to deal with your past, it's put in front of you. Jesus doesn't come to John from the front. He comes to John from where? From behind him. In Hebrew thought, whatever's behind you is the future. You know why? Because you can't see it back there. Jesus comes from the future behind him. And when John turns and he sees him and he sees the glorified Christ, he notices that there's nothing behind Jesus. Everything with Jesus, it's in front of him. Jesus, for Jesus, our past is as clear as the future. For Jesus, our future is as clear as his past. He's different. John doesn't refuse to worship this new revealing. Notice what John doesn't do. He doesn't look and say, you know what? You kind of look like him, but you know what? I had all the revelation I needed. I'm John. I'm the beloved disciple. I I had all I needed to conclude who he was. I'm not going to even look at you. John didn't. He fell down on his face and he did what? And he worshiped him. He doesn't claim that the former revealing that Jesus had was sacred to him. He falls and he worships this new revealing. And guess why? Because just before God's horror show, the last days are shown to John over the next, I don't know how many days in these revelations, he needed a new revelation of Jesus to see what mankind would be dealing with from now until the true end of time. We need a further revelation of Jesus every single day. Before it all happens, he assures us there's no reason to fear. We can worship a revealed Christ as the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Even one of the original 12, one that was labeled Jesus' beloved disciple, didn't have enough revelation. If that's true for him, how much more is it true for us? So, again, we navigate the house of mourning, but one question we will no longer ask is what? Why was it so good in the good old days? Why were the former days better than these? The Kohelet and Paul and Jesus and John would all say, it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Listen to us. We know what we're talking about the words of the Kohelet. Thank you again for hanging on with me a few extra minutes.